you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. We'll read together in just a moment verses 1 through 6. We kick off a series of marriage and family sermons this morning. Obviously, we'll focus today on Father's Day and light of the day, but this will be our focus, marriage and family, more broadly over the course of the next few weeks. It's been 18 years since God gave me a son and made me a father. I had been a pastor for 10 days when my first son was born. And if I knew as much now as I did then, you would be in for a treat. It is amazing how the older you get, the less you prove to know in time. When you don't have kids, all young pastors with no children are marriage and family experts. If you don't believe it, just ask them. They'll, they'll tell you. And then over time, you find out you don't know as much as you thought you did. And progressively, you find out you know yet still less than what you thought you did. But we're going to do our best to, to be helped and encouraged by the teaching of God's Word over the course of these next several weeks. Father's Day is one of two days on the calendar I refer to as guilt-free days. By that, I mean, on this day, I'm usually going to do what I want to do without a lot of guilt. The second is my birthday, which happens to be during deer season. So I refer to that day as guilt-free hunting day. I go and I stay from well before daylight until well after dark, and I don't feel bad about doing it. It's, it's not that my family gives me a guilt trip or makes me feel bad. It's a self-imposed guilt. I'm in the stand and I'm thinking about things that I might otherwise be doing, things that may need to be done, ways that I might serve my wife, ways that I might serve my children, ways I might even serve the church or serve the community in terms of, of ministry. There's this self-imposed sense of, of guilt it prevents me from being able to enjoy things I might otherwise enjoy. I'm going to take a nap today, and I am not going to feel bad about it. I think, I think, in similar ways, spiritually speaking, there, there, there is, and I, this is really for everyone, but especially for men, there is this self-imposed guilt. We examine ourselves against others, we examine ourselves even at time against the standard of the scripture. And although the promise of the gospel is that his grace is sufficient for me and for you, there remain these feelings of inadequacy, as though we're insufficient, these feelings of guilt, that even in moments of rest, we're not somehow contributing, living up. Even the church can kind of impose Guilt, sometimes what's meant to be so encouraging can be so deflating. Gather together and you look around and you see happy faces and smiling people and families that seem to have it all together. And you, you knew she threatened to throw the eggs at you before you left this morning. <laughs> there, there are all, all these standards that, that are either self-imposed or imposed upon us that become for us the measure. And what I want to say to you on this Father's Day is that as followers of Christ, every day is a guilt-free day 
Because Jesus has performed in perfection what is beyond our ability, by his grace, has granted us favor and mercy by his blood. Dear friends, this is enough. I don't want to suggest to you this morning that the decisions that you make don't bear consequence. Clearly they do. I am convinced that the almost complete absence of fathers or father figures in the lives of families and children is the most consequential societal issue of our day. The issue about which no one is willing to talk. It is glaring. It is obvious. It is apparent for any who has eyes to see, and yet no one will address it. But that is not the point of today's message. The point of today's message is to address those who have self-imposed guilt or had guilt imposed upon them and to point them toward the gentle, tender Savior who welcomes the weary and the heavy laden unto himself. I thought it might be a good idea to look at some biblical examples of fatherhood. Around our house, we have a four-year-old, for those who don't know, and I hear at least half a dozen times a day of how Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. That's good theology, by the way. So let's all praise the Lord at least six times. Except it's not Father Abraham in our house, it's just Father Ham. Father Ham had many sons. Many sons had Father Ham. He's, he, is, he is Father Abraham, father of a great and vast nation. And by faith in Jesus, we are sons of Abraham. So how about we examine Abraham's life? You know, we have these sort of idealistic views of these biblical fathers and I'll just spoiler alert here. In the Bible, there is only one perfect father, God the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the rest of them are all jacked up, just like you and just like me. And so I think we stand to be encouraged as we compare and contrast our experience with that of Abraham more so than deflated by the usual course of treatment of such passages. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. If you found your way there, join me in standing as we read the word of God together. Verse 1, after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Abram later to be called Abraham. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you've given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. There are verses that have become famous in the Western church for good reason. 
I think of John 3.16. As a child, any sporting event that I watched, there was always someone in the crowd holding up a great big poster board with John 3.16. Before I knew what John 3.16 was or knew anything really about the Bible, I knew the reference from watching Major League Baseball games. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And sort of this turn towards self-help, personal improvement, other verses have become more popular in our culture. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, almost always taken outside of its context. And sort of this backward way, Matthew 7.1 has become a famous verse in our culture. Judge not, lest ye be judged. In that case, always completely ignoring the full context of that passage in which judgment is required of us in discerning the good from the bad, the right from the wrong, and even the hogs from the dogs, as Jesus says in the sixth verse of that chapter. But if we were to slip on the sandals of a New Testament era believer, you would be hard-pressed to find a more famous or more popular verse than Genesis chapter 15 and verse number 6. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. This verse is regarded by New Testament believers and New Testament authors as the summary statement of Abraham's conversion experience. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was said to be the heir of his father Terah, an insanely wealthy man by the standards of, of any period of time. He, he was his father's heir. He was to assume charge over all of his servants and all of his properties and all of his possessions. These things were to come into the care of Abram at the death of his father Terah, Abram being the eldest son within the clan. Abram had enjoyed the comfort and the affluence of life among the Chaldeans in the region of, of Ur. And God called him away from that. God called Abram to come away from that community, to come away from that sense of security, to come away from the identity he'd had as the eldest son in his father's house. And go to a land God had appointed for him to bear a son and to begin a nation that would be a city on a hill that would, by virtue of its enjoyment of the glory of God, serve to draw the nations to the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. God called him away. And Abram believed the promise of God and therefore followed after the call of God. New Testament writers regard this as his conversion experience. If you think about it in these terms, it makes all the sense in the world. He was called away from the things of this world to come to a land that God had appointed for him. This is, in effect, what God has called us to do. To come away from the things of this world, believing the promise of the gospel, headed toward a land that flows with milk and honey, a land appointed for you and for me by faith in Jesus. Roundly regarded as his conversion experience. I think we can agree with the writers of the New Testament that here we have at least a summary of the experience of Abraham being called to God in faith to hear and to heed the promise of God for him. So what happens after this? 
What do the next steps in Abram's life look like? In the rest of the story, Abraham gets it all together, and he always does the right thing. He's the best father who always makes the best decisions, and he's always faithful to his wife, Sarah, and he always does what's in her best interest. Is that what happens next in the story? No, that could not be further from I'm just making sure y'all paying attention this morning. I know some of y'all were up late last night without electricity. Got to keep you, in, keep you in the game. By the time we get to chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah have grown disheartened and discouraged. No child has come. And so they proceed to take matters into their own hands. And they get this idea that what we'll do is we'll have Abraham take Hagar, Sarah's maidservant, and lie with her. And the child conceived will be the son of promise, the son that God had promised. This is one of a thousand examples in the Bible and in everyday experience that the ends don't justify the means. You will not corner God. You will not force his hand which is in effect what they sought to do by having Abraham lie with Hagar. Now, I mentioned to you a moment ago, the free grace of God does not remove the earthly consequence of sin. What unfolds in Genesis chapter 16 is still bearing fruit today. The Arab-Israeli conflict began in the tent of Abraham. And so he steps outside of his marriage, and they give birth to a son in his name is Ishmael. God would not be hemmed. God would not be cornered. God's hand would not be forced. Ishmael would not be born the son of promise. That child was yet to come. By the time we come to Genesis chapter 20, we find Abraham in typical nomadic fashion moving around the land that God had appointed for him. The Bible says that Abraham traveled to the region of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. While he lived in Gerar, Abraham said about his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, had Sarah brought to him. Now, Abimelech did not dispatch Sarah because he sought friendly conversation. He sent for Sarah because he sought her as his wife. There is some attraction that exists between them. And Abraham must have understood his wife, Sarah, to be an attractive lady Because when they entered that region, Abraham being fearful of the kings of that area, he said, here's what we're going to say. We're going to tell everyone that you're my sister. In other words, he was afraid that because Sarah was appealing to the kings of that country, they might seek to have her as a wife and in doing so, kill or harm Abraham in some way. It's a tremendously cowardly act on the part of Abraham. He put his wife in a compromising position because he was himself afraid of the kings of that territory. God intervenes and prevents that anything would happen, but it's an act of of grace and of grace alone that it does. God speaks to Abimelech and he becomes aware that Sarah is Abraham's wife. Now, gentlemen, it is always a bad thing to lie but it's an even worse thing to lie about your wife. And that is exactly what we find Abraham doing in Genesis chapter 20. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 21, Isaac is born, that son of promise. 
Sarah just can't handle living in the same tent with Hagar and Ishmael anymore. She sees the way Hagar looks at Isaac, her promised child, and she beseeches Abram that Hagar and Ishmael would be put away, and in fact they are, pushed out of the camp. There's sort of a desperate scene that unfolds in the latter part of Genesis chapter 21. Hagar and Ishmael are sent out. They find themselves in the desert in desperate straits. Hagar sits Ishmael in one place to go forward a short distance and to pray, and she begins to cry out to God in a statement that expresses the tenderness of God toward children. The Bible notes in verse 17 of Genesis 21 that in spite of Hagar's imploring heaven that God would intercede, the Bible says God heard the voice of the child and intervened and brought relief. In spite of Abram's hardness of heart toward this child now unwanted in his home, God had tenderly intervened and provided for his need. Chapter 25, we read in summary form a bit of Abraham's life after the death of Sarah. I won't try to read the names of all of the children that were born to Abraham and his second wife, Keturah, because they're hard to pronounce. It is sufficient that we look to verse 5 where the Bible says Abraham gave everything he owned to Isaac. And Abraham gave gifts to the sons of his concubines, but while he was still alive, he sent them eastward away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Sons of his concubines. We don't use that terminology today, thankfully. It's not a terribly aesthetically pleasing word even to say. It just means mistress. More often in the vernacular, we might say girlfriend. So let's run the list. Abraham had an adulterous relationship with Hagar and, and bore a child, an illegitimate child, outside of his marriage in Ishmael. And then he lied and said that Sarah wasn't even his wife, put her in such a compromising position that she was nearly taken as wife to Abimelech. Then he puts out Hagar and Ishmael from under his help and protection. They are sent away. They are effectively abandoned. And then he has children by girlfriends, mistresses, or concubines. Now, I'm going to ask a hard question, one that you may be considering, because this is the brother who is supposed to be our point of comparison for this morning's sermon, right? Who wants a father or a husband who sleeps with his maidservant, who abandons his child, and who has a house full of mistresses. There's an old sermon illustration. It's an old Matt Chandler sermon. It became popular. If you're my age, a little younger, you may know it. Sometimes it'll be referred to as the rose, just in general. He tells a story of being a fairly young believer, new believer, excited about the gospel, radically saved by the gospel, and taking along to a church service a young woman who was herself an unbeliever at the time. They come into the church service, and there's several hundred people there, and they're sort of near the back. She's a little uncomfortable with the situation, and as best I remember, had something of a checkered background or past, and just sort of trying to find her way. 
The pastor preached that day a sermon on sexual purity. And at the beginning of the sermon, he, he held up a rose in full bloom, beautiful, described all of the details of the rose, how becoming it was, how beautiful it was, the scent that it bore, all of those things. And as he began to preach, the body of the sermon, he handed the rose to a person in the congregation with the instruction that over the course of the sermon, they were going to pass the rose to every person in that congregation. Everyone in the room would handle that rose throughout the duration of the service. They would, they would touch the rose. They would smell the rose. They would pass it from person to person. As he brought the sermon to a close, the rose had made its way back to the front of the congregation. And he called for the rose. Now, the head of the rose nearly falling off the stem. Its petals were darkened because it had been touched. I mean, it's just a mess. Begins the service, this beautiful rose, and it, and it winds up like, like something you throw out of, at the florist. And he holds the rose up at the end of this sermon on sexual purity, and he says, now who wants this rose? As though to say, after the rose has been touched and handled by the hundreds of people gathered in that room, who in the world would want this rose now? Chandler tells the illustration to express what he wanted to scream out in that service. The answer is the same to the previously asked question. Who wants a husband or a father or a man who has a child outside of wedlock, who commits the act of adultery, who has a house full of mistresses, who lies on his wife? The answer is the same. Who wants the rose and who wants this kind of brother? His name is Jesus. Jesus wants the rose. And Jesus wants the weak and the foolish things of this world in spite of what we've done, in spite of what we may be actively doing, in spite of what we will do in a day to come. Jesus loves us, faults, failures, flaws, and all. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the, the rest and the hope, the grace and the mercy we find in the gospel. God moved in this way, saving Abraham in this way in spite of all of the failures that marked the course of his life. He believed God, and God credited Abraham with righteousness. The New Testament speaks to this, as we've already mentioned, specifically in three passages. I want us to see them together this morning. Look at Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, the focus is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Justification is a legal term. It is as though in the courtroom of God, we have been declared by God on the basis of Jesus' righteousness to be holy and blameless. In other words, we receive credit in the courtroom of God for the life that Jesus has lived. Because of that, our life is not counted against us. Jesus takes our sin upon himself and put his righteousness upon us by faith in him. That's the focus of Romans chapter 4. In fact, the Bible says in verse 1, What then can we say that Abraham, our physical ancestor, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to brag about, 
but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not considered as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who doesn't work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the man God credits righteousness to apart from works. How joyful are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. How joyful is the man the Lord will never charge with sin. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then, or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. Now those last few verses kind of read in a cumbersome way, and you may think, what in the world is going on in this passage of Scripture? I seriously doubt there's anyone here today who has the pressing issues of circumcision and uncircumcision at the fore of their thought. This is what I call a yeah, but passage. Paul is saying we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But what he's saying here, he's saying to a largely Jewish audience who have always lived in separation and isolation from Gentile people and have always regarded themselves in some ways superior because of the ceremonial practice of circumcision. So what began to be taught, even in New Testament churches, was that in order to be converted to Christianity, you must first be converted to Judaism, which means taking the right of circumcision. It's not exactly the best church growth strategy, right? And Paul is pushing back at that. He says, saved by grace through faith. They say, yeah, but circumcision. Now, again, no one here is thinking about circumcision. At least I hope not. But you're all thinking about yeah, buts. Saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But I grew up and I wised up. Saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Yeah, but my daddy was a deacon and my mama loved Jesus. Saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Yeah, but I always attended church, and I memorized the verses in Awana, and I was a member of the royal ambassadors. Saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Yeah, but I grew up in the Bible Belt South, Baptist Haven. Saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Yeah, but... I never did drugs, I never slept around, didn't smoke, drink, or chew, or run around with girls that do. I had it all together, yeah, but. And what Paul is saying, listen, circumcision is not the issue for us this morning, but the yeah, but is. And you have floating around in your imagination, no matter how firmly you are indoctrinated, to repeat, to mimic the language of saved by grace through faith, not of work, works, lest any man should boast. There is this sediment of pride that remains in the human heart that wants to insist against the teaching of God's word that we are ourselves in some way contributing something to the experience of salvation and nothing could be further from the truth. Our salvation is bound up entirely in the finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross 
and the victory he assured for us in being raised from the dead on that third day. We are, in fact, saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. We all on the same page? We know that we should be, whether we are in our heart of hearts. Here, here's, where, here's where I think we may have a divergence of ideas. I think, and this is especially true for men on this Father's Day, we have in our head that we are saved by grace through faith, but the work of sanctification is our responsibility. I have literally heard preachers say, God does his part, and then we do our part. Let me tell you something. That is a hellish lie. We self-impose this idea. And listen, I'm not discounting many passages of Scripture that speak of the necessity of working out our salvation in fear and in trembling. The countless passages in the New Testament that call upon us to labor, to exert ourselves, to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. But you've got to understand the source of strength for your laboring, the source of insight for your fear and trembling. It is not just that we are saved by grace through faith. It is furthermore that we are sanctified by grace through faith. You know how you become a believer? You repent of your sin and you believe the message of the gospel for your salvation. You know how you grow in grace? How you become sanctified progressively over time? You repent of your sin and you believe the promise of the gospel. See this in Galatians 3, and I want you to turn there. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Paul takes this head on. If you'll think deeply about what we're describing here, this will offend the sensibilities of some. But that's a good thing. The same issue of circumcision is still on the table. The same yeah, but exists in Galatia as in Rome. But Paul is moving even beyond the issue or the question of one's salvation by grace to the matter of how one is sanctified by grace. Galatians 3, 1, you foolish Galatians. Aren't you glad your pastor doesn't always preach like Paul? <laughs> Who has hypnotized you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified. I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now going to be made complete by the flesh? Did you hear what Paul said? You are saved by grace. And now you think you're going to be made complete by the works of the flesh? You were saved by grace, and now you think you're going to be made complete by checking boxes and doing stuff? You were saved by grace through faith, and now you think you're going to keep all these commandments, and that's going to somehow curry the favor of God in your life? Do you hear what Paul is saying? Do you see how this militates against our mentality? How this militates against 99% of men's ministry. Be better. Do better. Try harder. Sola bootstrapper. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Labor. Listen, 
I am not opposed to discipline and effort, and neither is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Discipline is a good thing. You ought to get up early in the morning. You ought to work a good, long, hard day. You ought to suffer from time to time. Suffering is good. You ought to run till you can't run anymore. You ought to run till you throw up from time to time. It's a good experience. You ought to lift until you can't lift anymore. You ought to work until you can't work anymore. You ought to get out in the heat till you can't bear the heat anymore. You ought to get in the cold till you can't bear the cold anymore. It is a good thing to suffer and to be disciplined, to beat the body. God has saved us, endowed us with the Spirit. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. We ought to embody that in the Christian experience. But our sanctification is to be found by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You started in grace. Would you be now so foolish as to believe that you'll be made complete by the works of the flesh? I can, I can hear your objections. What's striking to me is that everywhere Paul preached, he was interpreted and criticized for giving license to sin. Think about Paul's writings. In Romans, in Romans 6, you remember what the issue is? There's an opposing party who says, Paul teaches we should sin more so that grace may abound. And I get it. I, like I'm looking out at the faces of people who are sort of working this thing out. And in your mind, the logical conclusion of saying that God loves us in spite of what we have done, what we are doing, what we will do, is that people are going to find in that license to do whatever they want to do without any concern for consequences or the, or the pleasure of God whatsoever. And I, I get that that spirit, that heart posture exists. But in, until you have been touched by the gospel and that perspective, that heart posture has been touched by Jesus, I can't do anything for you anyway. I'm speaking to those who are weary and heavy laden under the burden of sin and shame. And what I'm saying to you this morning is that in spite of your faults and your flaws and your failures, there is a gentle and lowly Savior who invites us to come to him to unburden ourselves from worldly guilt and to take his yoke upon us as a tender and merciful master. That's good news, right? This is good news for the failed father, for the husband who really messed it up. You sort of look back as an adult at your childhood and try to sort of psychoanalyze where you were and what your mentality was. My parents divorced when I was 12 years old. I think apart from my salvation experience, it was the most consequential thing to ever happen in my life. It was a, it was a deeply impactful episode in my life. Looking back at my 12-year-old self, I would have never put it this way, but I, I think the thing that created such bitterness and made me so jaded over the next several years was the realization that the people who love me the most will fail me and over time prove to be unfaithful. I never doubted that my parents loved me. My parents loved me. It's a fairly natural thing for parents to love their kid. I never doubted that. In fact, I was quite certain of it. That's what made it so difficult that these people who I know to love me above virtually anything else 
have failed me in this catastrophic way. And then you become an adult and a husband and a father. And you come to this dreadful realization that in time, I will fail and prove unfaithful to those I love the most. There's not much that moves me. I'm not a terribly emotional person. I mean, I'd be moved, but you're just not going to know it. It's just my way. It's just how I am. It's probably not a virtue. In fact, it's probably not a good thing at all, but it's just weighed. But I got to tell you, the notion, just the thought of failing my wife and children is crushing. You, you fathers and mothers have experienced the same. And some of you children with a few years behind you have experienced the same with regards to your parents. And no, nothing hurts us like the thought of hurting those we love the most. There is such a weight that comes with the stewardship of fatherhood and being a husband and being a member of a family. There is such weight that comes with anything we bind our heart to. It can be crushing. And I just want to say to you this morning that when you fall, and you inevitably will, the grace of God has been and will be sufficient for you right where you land. The favor of God over our life as followers of Jesus is never in question. The kindness and the nearness of God to us as followers of Jesus is never in question. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Bible says that when we are faithless, he is faithful. God is not beset by your shortcomings. In fact, there seems to be this merciful sense in which he is drawn to them. The Bible says he has chosen to take the weak and foolish things of this world to confound the wise and to bind the strong. Jesus in his earthly ministry is profoundly drawn to the sinners and the tax collectors and the harlots of his day while rejecting out of hand those who perceive themselves to be righteous in and of themselves. If you are here this morning, weak and foolish, inadequate and insufficient, broken, flawed and failed, you are just the kind of person that Jesus has come to seek and to save by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good? And there's one more passage I want us to see before we're done. Turn over to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 10. This is known as the faith chapter. It begins with a definition of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of that which is unseen. And then we get this list of 20-some-odd examples from the Old Testament of people who were moved by faith to take some great action used by God throughout the history of redemption. Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and went out to a place he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, 
co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. One of the major points that Hebrews 11 is making, not just with regards to Abraham, but those other 20 some odd examples, is that faith does move us. Faith is a call to action. Faith has effect in our life. It seems counterintuitive that you would say that we are forgiven full and free, that God's grace is sufficient for me, that he loves me in Christ regardless of what I have done, what I am doing, and what I will do. And that would be the truth that produces in us faithfulness over the course of time. It it doesn't seem to add up, does it? In in other words, what is interpreted by the world as license to sin is turned by the work and power of God's Holy Spirit to enable obedience in the people of God. How is it that he takes us as we are, forgives us full and free without qualification or exception, and yet at the same time, he is molding us and making us over into the image and the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. It is that, in some mysterious way, liberated from the burden of sin and shame, this burgeoning gratitude in our heart, for all that God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, is met together with the abiding presence of God's Holy Spirit in us, enabling, unlocking a capacity for obedience in us that is not our own. If you do, let me just put this as his basis, I don't know how to put it. If you do good stuff, do you know where that comes from? It comes from the work of God's Holy Spirit. Now, true enough, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. And there are times when the flesh rears its ugly head in some very obvious ways. You know what happens then? God grants grace and mercy when we're faithless. He is faithful. A tender shepherd invites the weary and heavy laden to come to him. But at the same time, there are these moments, these episodes, these chapters of our life marked by the powerful, manifest, abiding presence of God's Holy Spirit, making more of us than we'll ever make of ourselves. Your salvation is exclusively the work of Jesus. Your sanctification is exclusively the work of Jesus. Any ability you find today, tomorrow, any day to come, to honor the command of God over your life, to be a good daddy, to be a good husband, to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Ladies, you're not accepted. It's the work of God's Holy Spirit in you. I just rest in this. I rest, I'm, I'm resting in this. I am so resting in this that in spite of my faults and failures, God might be pleased to do something with the boys he has entrusted to me because their future and well-being is not entirely reliant on the wisdom, insight, and abilities of their father, but a good heavenly father who watches out for his people and who lords sovereignly over their life in great grace and mercy. You know who loves your wife more than you do, husbands? Jesus. You know who loves your kids better than you do? Husbands, fathers, mothers. His name is Jesus. We can rest in that. Amen? Amen. Let's go to him in prayer.
Father, thank you for your kindness toward us. Help us to do what we've discussed this morning and to rest in the finished work of your son, Jesus. Liberate us for faithfulness and fruitfulness through the promise of the gospel that takes away all our sin and credits all your righteousness to our account. God, we love you. And I pray that you would help us by the work of your spirit to love you more. We recognize that we only love you because you first loved us. We ask that you would continue to stir our hearts, enable obedience in us, Lord. Help us to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called, to work out our salvation in fear and in trembling. And at the same time, Lord, to relish the free grace and the certainty that we have behind the blood and in the body of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you be pleased in our response to the preaching of your word, that you would stir among us, call the lost to salvation, sinners to repentance, the church to renewal and revival. May your will be done in Jesus' name. Amen.